What an inspiring marriage and family. You know, I did the Memorial Day concert on Sunday, and it was a segment actually on the power of music and the power of music therapy uh, because uh, Captain Luis Avila had uh, such horrendous injuries that he has been in multiple surgeries, 70, I think he said, for six years. and he, Seven zero. Yeah, and he only regained speech in the last year, and it was through music therapy. So once you see this occur and the gift that it gives to people, whether they've had stroke or whether they're in Parkinson's, they're having difficulty moving and rhythm and dance, you know, helps them reconnect again with the parts of the brain that then begin to function better and coordinate better, pain relief, and certainly Alzheimer's and autism. Music sometimes is the only thing that can reach those patients. That's singer Renee Fleming. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Renee Fleming is a supremely talented classical singer. A four-time Grammy Award winner, Fleming is a lyric soprano whose purity of voice soars, as well as a compelling and accessible performer. She's one of the few classical singers who has crossed over into the popular imagination. Singing David Letterman's Top Ten list, recording both jazz and popular music CDs, and performing the national anthem at the 2014 Super Bowl. And while Fleming is stepping away from some of the roles she owns, like the Marshallin in Der Rosenkavalier, she's also adding to an already strenuous offstage workload. She's a longtime champion for literacy. She's been creative consultant to the Lyric Opera of Chicago, and more recently, artistic advisor at large for the Kennedy Center. In fact, it was through Renee Fleming that the Kennedy Center joined with the National Institutes of Health to explore the connections of music, health, and science. And to that end, those two organizations, in association with the National Endowment for the Arts, launched the Sound Health Partnership. Last weekend, Renee Fleming joined musicians and scientists at the Kennedy Center for Sound Health's first public initiative, Music and the Mind. Music and the Mind was a two-day program that explored music's ability to heal, to actually change neural circuitry in the brain and expand our creative potential. I spoke with Renee Fleming here at the Arts Endowment the day before Music and the Mind premiered. And as we heard at the top of the show, it is work Renee Fleming is passionately committed to. I've been interested in this subject for a long time, really just by you know being an armchair newsreader and, and piquing my interest at seeing it about once a month, there'd be some sort of research that would be in the paper about music in the brain. And I met Francis Collins, Dr. Collins, who runs the NIH at a party, at a dinner party. And we ended up performing for a very illustrious a group of justices, Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Justice Kennedy. This was a couple of years ago at the end of, this, the, of the, I was going to say season, after very contentious um, decisions. And we broke the ice with, by music making. Francis Collins brought his guitar and we sort of co-opted the little band that was there and we staged an impromptu sing-along uh, and it was really fun. And I said to him, do you think there's any chance that these two institutions, the NIH and the Kennedy Center, could collaborate in order to amplify this extraordinary work that's being done in, in music in the brain? 
And he said, indeed, we can. I was sort of amazed, actually. Um, I think the timing was right. He is a lifelong music lover and participator. He not only plays, but he composes. He sings. Uh, and, he, and uh, you know, we, we were at an event um, 18 months ago or so in which he wrote a song for Yo-Yo Ma and performed it. So, you know, he's an extraordinary guy in any case. And so I think he, he just felt there was enough. They have a major brain initiative anyway, a study of the brain. And so music is very much a part of that, which is terrific. It's so interesting because we think of the arts and science as being somehow antithetical right. when... No, they're so related. It's extraordinary. And there's a reason why all of us are pushing STEAM. And STEAM is science, technology, engineering, art, and math. Yes. And it's because it's not just human creativity, but the way the brain functions. And for instance, basic science has now pretty much proven that music predates speech and the evolution of human beings. And so there are, there are so many things that they're discovering about how we process music that make the whole subject more interesting than I think one would have guessed, far beyond just enjoyment. Um, but he said, uh, he, he said that we are hardwired for music in a way that wasn't previously understood because music lives in its own distinct place in the brain. How interesting. I always think we're hardwired for stories. If I think about what makes us human, mm-hmm. we, we're the ones who tell the stories. It's true. No, it's true. I mean, that's, what, that's, you know, that's a little bit part of that. Yeah. But because music is, is often pre-verbal in a way, it has a, another a powerful function, and it uses more parts of the brain than um, a speech does, certainly. And the other thing I think that, that's been interesting to me is the power of improvisation to give us increased brain health, to utilize and challenge um, way more parts of the brain than other types of engagement with music. Yeah, I saw studies done uh, where they wired, and I, I know there's a technical term that I don't know what it is, to jazz musicians mm-hmm. as, as they were jamming yes. just so they could study their brain. And it was fascinating. I asked Charles Lim yesterday, um, Dr. Lim, who's, who's coming in, to give this presentation on improv. I said, please explain the difference between fMRI, EEG, and MRI, because I didn't know it. I, I hardly knew what any of that was. So you're right. I actually participated in a two-hour-long experiment at the NIH where, and it, this was an fMRI, so I was And in, can you explain that to me? What is an fMRI? So an fMRI measures uh, blood flow. And I was in the machine for two hours singing, imagining singing, and speaking, you know, a couple of phrases from a song that I will perform tomorrow night. And they will show the results and share them with the audience. So it's really a fabulous way of of kind of showing exactly on on the brain itself what happens when we really are are either listening or, or performing music. That's amazing. Back in January, there was a two-day planning workshop at NIH, and it included a lot of scientific presentations. Right. And you, you were there for the whole thing. And I was wondering, did anything surprise you? Oh, yeah. I learned so much. Um, first of all, you know, one of, the, one of the goals of this whole collaboration is to further music therapy as a field, as a profession, and it has to do with the science. And what I learned, for instance, One of the things I learned is that actually um, building up uh, a kind of foundation of scientific 
research puts you really in the weeds. I mean, it's the tiniest grain of information that's proven, that's that has controls, that's really rigorously planned that sets up this foundation for us understanding why, for instance, on YouTube, videos go viral of people who are unreachable until somebody puts an iPod and headphones on their head, and they're reconnected with music that they loved, and suddenly they come alive. Mm-hmm. You know, Dan Cohen's film, Alive Inside, really illustrates that. So it's, it's going to be a while, I think, before science connects those two dots uh, in a meaningful way. But in the meantime, we, we see that it works. Exactly. And we can keep on keeping on and then right. they can fill out the data exactly. <laughs> as they get yeah, it. Yeah, that's, that's it. I think of it as a mosaic, you know, and they have to build those little blocks. Is there a way musicians can help in this research, do you think? I think we are. I mean, you know, for me to just be part of that experiment and and also, you know, again, it, it gets the message out that this is happening. Um, it also encourages organizations to fund the research, to support the research at various universities and um, hospitals. And uh, it's a sharing in a sense and a connecting also of, of these different disciplines because you have researchers and scientists, you have people who work in, in education, child, childhood development, um, we found uh, in the research really is, is affected by the arts and by especially music instruction. We'll, we'll have Dr. Nina Krauss here who will give a demonstration and hopefully talk about the fact that children who engage with learning instruments, for instance, or learning how to, how to play an instrument are better at comprehension, of speech comprehension. You know, and we know they have to be disciplined and there's a certain amount of focus required and there are other skills that they gain, but, but I thought that one was really interesting. That is interesting. And, you know, on a much more mundane level, we all know the easiest way to teach a child anything is to put it into a song. That's and, right. And they remember. That's right. I still remember the songs that my children sang to learn the alphabet and learn the 50 states, and it's no, ingrained for life. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. You began as a creative consultant to the Lyric Opera five years ago, and I read you had asked yourself, okay, what can I do to make opera more relevant and sustainable? Mm -hmm. Five years later, do you feel like you're closer to having some answers to that? Well, a passion of mine was audience development, and my theory is that putting on great opera does not necessarily draw new people. You're preaching to the converted. You're preaching to the people who are already coming. And sure, the odd straggler will come in and say, I love this. The quality has to be good. But I, I feel that it's, it's what you do outside and offstage in terms of, you know, whether it's community outreach or whether it's presenting new things in other places. Or what we did is we now present um, music theater, classic music theater every year. We, we developed a Second City Guide to the Opera and also to Wagner's Ring Cycle. And I curated a, a world premiere of an opera called Bel Canto uh, based on my friend Ann Patchett's book of the same name. So it's these types of projects, I think, um, create buzz around the opera house and make it sort of more inviting, more interesting, and hopefully that is helpful. There's also, I think, an intimidation process that happens, I think, with new people, which in a way is kind of paradoxical because right. people have the sense opera is elitist and they need to know so much in order to get it. But yeah. people who love opera, they, they're not reacting intellectually. It's yeah. a real emotional response. That's a, correct. Yeah. I don't know any art lovers more passionate than opera lovers. 
Well, and the current barriers, some of it is, is a little bit of intimidation, as you said. And people have the sense they know it's in, typically in a foreign language, so they're just going to, they assume they're not going to know, they're not going to understand it. And, of course, we say what there are titles now. Everybody has them. And people sometimes still ask what they should wear. But I also think it's a little bit of an excuse. You know, it's, I don't need to do that. That's a niche. That's, other people do that. And so people don't give it a chance. And another barrier is the length. You know, so I'm all for um, actually creating abridged works alongside the full-length works and allowing audiences to choose, and let's see what happens. There's mm-hmm. a tremendous amount of resistance to that because I think, you know, everyone is afraid that they'll be sort of uh, criticized by the purists or the, the so-called opera police. And, um, and I think we have to be a little more aggressive about trying new things. It's important, you know, because as the audience diminishes. And of course, education is a huge part of that. Certainly the fact that now all opera companies have very aggressive ways of inviting young people in with price reductions and uh, and all kinds of ways. And I always say make it social somehow. And all of these things are really working. There's something about music you hear when you're young that you hear and you listen in Mm -hmm. a way that no matter what else you might learn about music, right. you just hear it in your bones somehow. Yeah, uh, and, and it's like learning anything. It's much easier when you're a young person, and it sticks better. I mean, that's why I learned foreign languages when I was in my early 20s. And there was always there was this notion that people had the exposure at a young age called planting the seed, and then they would come back to it. once Because when their families are young, it's hard. It's very hard to get out at night. Um, but I would say, no, 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 create, let's create a lot more programming for families, for children, and make it accessible, make it possible for them to come all through their, you know, all through the period of time that they're, that they have young families. That's what I mean by being a little bit more assertive about change. Right, because a hundred years ago, opera music was popular music. Right, exactly. That's what people were singing in the street. Yes, it was, uh, it's what people did. I mean, a hundred years ago, um, we had, you know, Caruso and Nellie Melba, and, and these people were world stars uh, in the same way they sold products, and they, uh, they were known everywhere. And this was pre, pre-media, so it's really extraordinary to think, how did that message get out? Yeah, it is interesting, yeah. isn't it? All singers share the same challenge in that they are their instrument, and their instrument is them. Mm-hmm. I think with opera... In some ways, that's magnified, perhaps. Yeah. It's it's unique. Well, it's because we're not amplified, I think. It, it really is the body that creates the sound. Um, we're all unique. We sound differently. Uh, I just did the voice for Julianne Moore's Roxanne Koss in, in uh, Bel Canto, the film, which will come out next season. And she and her husband came to a rehearsal for a gala, an opera gala, and they had never heard singers live They'd only heard them in a recording or on television, and she said it was a, it was really a revelation to them. She just kept saying, "Oh my gosh, they're all so different," you know. And that all that gets equalized on the microphone to some degree. It, it's not, it's not as rich. The variation, the you know, some voices are piercing, some voices are incredibly warm, some are huge, some are, are refined and small, and they all reflect the human being that embodies that voice. And the voice also changes over years. And, yes. you, you know, so there's a constant rethinking, can I still sing this? Well, I think opera singers, actually, we get more time than other singers because we have such rigorous training. So for the most part, I, what I see is, it, is we're allowed a, a type of longevity that popular singers rarely have. 
And it's because also the audience stays with us. You know, they want to see where we're going to develop. Remember, we're choosing from 300 years of music. So it's, it's kind of endless what we can perform. It's really remarkable. I mean, to have careers consistently that are over 30 years, that's a luxury. You've done, uh, well, any number of operas, but I'm thinking of two classic roles in two great American operas, uh, Susanna in Carlisle Floyd's mm-hmm. opera, Susanna, and you created the role of Blanche in Andre Previn's adaptation of A Streetcar Named Desire. If you're thinking about those 20th century American works as a singer, was it different for you from 18th or 19th century roles? Well, I've, I've done a ton of new music. I mean, also Ghost of Versailles and Dangerous Liaison, and I just premiered a piece by Kevin Putz that were, was a setting of, of George O'Keefe's letters. Mm-hmm. So I love new music, and I do a lot of it. I mean, obviously, the, the primary difference is that you're singing in your own language as opposed to 18th, 19th century music. Um, you know, pretty consistently, it's going to be a European-based uh, musical language and 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 speech language, so uh, so that I find really wonderful. But other than that, it really entirely depends on the composer. But I love, I mean, I really love new music. I've always loved it. As well as being one of the great stars of opera, you've done many concerts, recitals, recordings. Have you always combined all of these? And I'm wondering how performing in an opera is different for you from performing in a concert. Well, this has kind of been my schedule for, I'd say, about 15 years. I, I've Since my children went into school, I had to be very careful about opera. I could be in New York where I was home, but I didn't want to be elsewhere uh, much, maybe once or twice. So typically, I have concertized for a long time, and that's how I spend most of my time. I'm going to China um, next, and I was just in Europe with um, the Dresden's Stadtkapelle and also in with the Vienna Philharmonic. And this is incredible. It's, I love this work, and I'll hopefully continue to do this for a little bit. One of your great, great roles is the Marshallin in Rosencavalier, and you've just done that at the Met. What goes into preparing a role like that? Well, the the first time is, of course, arduous, because learning the role is, is, is a lot. Act one is challenging. It's a tremendous amount of text. It's very chromatic and it's very fast moving. It's like it's declama- it's it's declamatory. It's a ton of speech on pitch. Uh, but once you've done that, you know the the staging is not hard. I mean, it's it comes together in a new production. Of course, you're working with the director, one on one. This was Robert Carson as a director I really loved and is a friend of mine, and we've done a lot together. So that was a joy. It was all a joy. You were a jazz singer in college. Well, I mean, it, I sang jazz in college for a couple of years with a trio, but I was majoring in classical music, as one does. You know, now only now recently are there jazz programs, yeah, exactly. uh, as there are music theater programs. But then there was only you only ever studied classical singing, and uh, but I loved it, and I still love it. I'm an avid listener and enjoyer of jazz. I heard your your CD Haunted Heart, mm-hmm. and I was really stunned by your voice because you're a lyric soprano. And in, in this CD, your register in, in some of those songs was so much lower. There's a ghost of you within my haunted heart. Ghost of you, my lost romance. 
Well, I, I, in order not to sound like a classically trained singer, and you didn't. I have to keep it in my speech register because I don't have the skill. I mean, I, don't, I never learned how to mix up high, and I don't want to even attempt to do that now for uh, how hard it would be on my voice. So what I discovered is as long as I stay in this particular range, I can sound idiomatically and a little bit stylistically more correct. I thought it was gorgeous. I really did think it was gorgeous. Oh, I mean, your thank voice you. was like honey. It oh, was really you. gorgeous. And in the fall, you in the fall, you're playing Nettie and Carousel, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and this is going to be your Broadway musical debut. Yeah, yeah. What led you? Well, there? it's actually it starts in the spring, uh, and it's it. I think it'll be fun. It'll be a fun experience, something new, something a little bit different, and um, uh, you know, and it's I've I've had to commit to a certain amount of time and still carve out periods where I can tour because I want to make sure I maintain my voice, and I, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be really a wonderful experience. Opera books so far in advance. Yeah, yes. Yeah, there, in, there were periods when I had operas five years from now, which is hard because you have to sort of envision, as you said, the body changes, and also the kind of music that you're loving to sing changes, and you have to kind of try and project what it is you'll want to be doing, and it's, it's impossible to really know. So, you know, I always was conservative about those choices to because I didn't really want to get there and disappoint people and have to cancel or or be singing something that I wish I hadn't, that I wish I was doing something else. Um, but on the other hand, it was just the necessity. It's how things were scheduled. How do you decide what projects to take on? You know, I, I, I basically go by what, if, does it fit? Is it a fit? And do I love it? And, and is it a fit is not just range, it's also weight, the vocal weight of something, how dramatic is the orchestra. And the other major issue is tessitura. Where, where is the mean register? And is that comfortable? Is that a fit? Why do you think music and art in general is important in the everyday lives of people? Oh, I, I think it's, you know, first of all, it's, it's a, it represents the creative spark. It represents a sort of way of making us feel alive. I find that when I'm engaged in art, and I'm a culture fanatic, I love theater, I love museums, I love the visual arts, I love poetry. It, that is how I know who I am. And it's not just because I'm relating to this because I'm a musician. It's because I have a sensibility that um, helps me to engage with life through a cultural lens. And I find that certainly when I see, for instance, uh, Turnaround Arts, when I saw that oh. here in Washington, D.C., in, a, in a, an elementary school, when I saw it at work, I've never seen children so engaged, so quiet, because they were engrossed in what they were doing, because it really combined their learning with some sort of artistic element, and it works. Yeah, it does, because it, it enables them to learn focus and discipline in a way that is associated with enjoyment and pleasure, which is not half bad. Right, right. The combination, I think, is very important. I mean, I was lucky in high school, for instance, that English and social studies and history were taught in a humanities course, and we read novels. And and I was I remember so much more what I got from those two years than uh, when I, what I learned when, when the subjects were separate. Your parents were both music teachers. Were you, were you destined to become a singer? Yeah, I'm an indentured servant, <laughs> say. yes. Um, and my mother is still teaching privately. She's still teaching voice. Uh, my father is, I think he's doing something right now having to do with teaching choral conducting to somebody else in my family, and we're very much engaged uh, still in the arts. If, if you had uh, to choose a profession other than your own, 
what do you think you'd like to attempt? Oh, I definitely would have wanted to be in business. I, I think business is another form of creation, especially as an entrepreneur. Um, I think that I would have loved that. Just the idea of putting that all together always fascinated me. And still, and I, you know, plus I get to meet extraordinary people who have succeeded in their lives. Uh, and I, I just find it really interesting. That's very lucky because how many singers really do have to be entrepreneurs? You have to manage your yes. career. I tell young singers uh, all the time now, and, and also for young artist programs, which I also advise a little bit, I say, you know, are you covering the website? Are you covering social media? Are you explaining finance? You know, are, they need all these skills, and they need to promote themselves. They really need to be promoters in a sense. It, it is quite demanding, and people would be shocked to know how much time I spend uh, really working uh, on these types of the planning side of things, the business side of things, much more than the artistic, I would say. Tell me a little bit about the program you put together for Music in the Mind. We're separating the program into segments. So we have um, segments, for instance, on healing, on the creative uh, mind, uh, on the audience and how the audience really absorbs music patterns, for instance, in Beethoven. The concert tomorrow night really is fantastic because we have Dan Levitin, who wrote This Is Your Brain on Music, hosting and kind of managing the overview. And then Edwin Outwater has done a lot of this type of programming. The young conductor is is doing a fabulous job with us. And we've got an extraordinary lineup of performers with Ben Folds, who is um, very interested in music therapy. Jesse Smollett from the hit show Empire is going to perform. We have Dr. Charles Lim, who's an ex, really an expert on hearing and on improvisation. And, he, and this is through studies that he's done. And I, I think people are going to learn a lot. That's the first evening. And the second day, what's on the bill? Saturday, all day, are, are really scientists and music therapists presenting their work. So, so we have um, segments, for instance, on children and music, breakthroughs, um, in terms of music therapy and recover, recovery, resilience, these kinds of issues, creative aging, and, um, and that's something I know we're all interested in. And Dr. Charles Lim will come back in the evening and do a segment on uh, improvisation with Esperanza Spaulding and extraordinary uh, V.J. Iyer pianist. So it's, it's an incredible program, I think. And I'm also hosting a panel with Dr. Francis Collins and Dr. Vivek Murthy. Um, who was until recently our Surgeon General, on the future of all of this. Um, so I think there's a lot to be um, certainly gained, and I know I've learned a lot in this process, and I find it, I'm really passionate about this work. You know, I did the Memorial Day concert on Sunday, and it was a segment actually on the power of music and the power of music therapy, uh, because uh, Captain Luis Avila had uh, such horrendous injuries that he has been in multiple surgeries, 70, I think he said, for six years. and he, Seven zero. Yeah, and he only regained speech in the last year, and it was through music therapy. So once you see this occur and the gift that it gives to people, whether they've had stroke or whether they're in Parkinson's, they're having difficulty moving and rhythm and dance, you know, helps them reconnect again with the parts of the brain that then begin to function better and coordinate better, pain relief, and certainly Alzheimer's and autism. 
music sometimes is the only thing that can reach those patients. It's, it's really an incredible field. And it's my wish to share this and to amplify the work. And at the end of this weekend, what, what, would, what would you like? What does success look like? First of all, success would be if we continue. Um, it would definitely be if the NIH can continue also on the path of trying to shore up this field more and learn more about it. And, and this goes hand in hand with their work on the brain, which is a huge initiative that is, in fact, occurring. And, and I, I see this happening, actually. There's a great interest in this work. So, um, it's, so I would love to take it around the country as I tour and kind of fold it into my performances somehow. That's exciting, and I yeah. look forward to that. Renee Fleming, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming here, and thank you for this wonderful work, thank truly. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And thanks to the NEA for extraordinary work. I mean, I am, I'm, by the way, I've been also really hollering my support for the NEA because I see that this uh, is, is funding in all of our fragile areas in terms of uh, building up our communities around the country. Through arts, I see an extraordinary amount of grassroots efforts in putting performances together. And I, I, I believe that there's a shared community and a sense of a shared experience there that we've lost uh, as Americans in other parts of life, you know, whether through the breaking down of, of the fabric of schools or of, of religious circles, but we see it very much in these small performing arts venues. And it's the NEA that keeps them going. Okay, well, thank you for those words, too. I appreciate it. Yay, true. Thank, thank you. you. That soprano and 2012 National Medal of Arts recipient, Renee Fleming. You can find out more about sound health at nih.gov backslash sound hyphen health. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.